Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. This episode of the History Guy Podcast is brought to you by Magellan TV a new kind of streaming service that aims to bring you the best documentaries from around the world. On today's episode, the History Guy talks about two strange cases of 19th century true crime. The time an American court case included the testimony of a ghost, and the terrible tale of the fairy trial of Bridget Clary. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. Long considered to be the most northern of the southern states and the most southern of the northern states, West Virginia is a state known for its scenic vistas and mountain views, but it could be just as well known for its unique history. For example, it was in West Virginia that the United States built a bunker that was designed to protect the United States Congress in the case of nuclear war. The more than 100,000 square foot facility built more than 700 feet below the Greenbrier Hotel in Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, was completed in 1961 and remained active clear until the 1990s when the Washington Post revealed its existence and it was decommissioned. And there is another piece of nearly forgotten American history that also occurred in Greenbrier County this one in the 1890s, because the curious story of one of the only known trials in history to include the testimony of a ghost deserves to be remembered. West Virginia joined the Union during the Civil War, splitting from the rest of Virginia, which joined the Confederacy. However, the people living in what would become West Virginia desired separate statehood long before that fatal break. There were differences in ethnicity and views about what constituted appropriate taxation and government representation, among other issues. About one-third of the population of Virginia lived in its western counties. When the Virginia legislature voted to secede from the Union in 1861, the overall vote was 88 to 55. Of the 55 dissenters, 29 of the representatives were from West Virginia. In response to the vote, and outraged at the result, Two conventions were held in Wheeling, in which a separate pro-Union government was elected. The new governor was Francis H. Pierpont, and he made the new state capital of what was called the Restored Government of Virginia in Wheeling, later moving it to Alexandria. In April the following year, a referendum was held, both upholding the new government and putting forth a resolution to split from the rest of Virginia. The vote was extremely popular, with a final vote of 18,862 to 514. President Abraham Lincoln wrote to Pierpont, advising, Make haste slowly. Things are improving by time. Draw up your proclamation carefully, and if you please, let me see it before issuing. The vote in the U.S. Congress to allow statehood ran along party lines, but the formation of West Virginia was approved. There was some concern about slavery in the new state, as Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation specifically only applied to those states in rebellion against the Union. But a senator named Waitman Wiley, one of the founders of West Virginia and a slave owner himself, crafted an amendment creating gradual emancipation for the slaves within the proposed state's counties. That amendment was approved by the voters, and statehood moved forward. On April 20th, 1863, Abraham Lincoln announced that West Virginia would become a state after a 60-day waiting period. On June 20th, the 35th state joined the Union. Elva Zona Hester was born in West Virginia in 1873, ten years after its formation. Not much is known about her life other than what survives through oral tradition. 
She was a bit of a free spirit for the time period, having a child out of wedlock in 1895. The next year, Zona met a blacksmith by the name of Erasmus Stribling Shoe, who was going by the name of Edward, but people in the town called him Trout. Shoe was more than a decade older than Zona. They had a whirlwind courtship and married in November 1896. By all accounts, the couple seemed to be happy and in love. However, Zona's mother, Mary Jane Robinson Heaster, reportedly had her doubts, both about the man and the short courtship. Then, in January of the next year, an 11-year-old neighbor who helped Zona around the house discovered her body at the foot of the stairs in her home. Reports from the time described the scene. The body was lying stretched out, perfectly straight, with feet together, one hand lying by the side and the other lying across the body. The head was slightly inclined to one side. He ran home to tell his mother, who summoned the doctor, police, and Edward Shue. By the time the doctor, George Knapp, got to the house, Shue had already taken his wife's body to a bedroom and dressed her for burial. He was cradling Zona's head and shoulders in his arms and rocking with grief. Knapp made a brief examination and declared Zona's death was due to an everlasting faint, what more modern doctors call a heart attack. According to some reports, the doctor later changed the cause of death to complications due to pregnancy, but Zona hadn't told anybody that she was pregnant and wasn't showing any signs of pregnancy at the time. Shu dressed his deceased bride in a high-collared dress himself. This was a break with tradition, as women from the community would usually prepare a body for burial. Her, he placed her body in a coffin, and Zona's remains were transported to her mother, Mary Jane Heaster's home, which was a few miles away on Big Sewell Mountain. Oddly, during the viewing of Zona's body, Shu did not leave his wife's side, remaining close to her casket and grieving, seeming to keep mourners from viewing the body too closely. But Mary Heaster did not trust Trout Shoe, and she did not believe that her daughter had simply dropped dead of a heart attack. She began to pray that her daughter's spirit would return and tell her how she died. Some four weeks after her daughter's funeral, Mary said she began to have visions at night of Zona's spirit. Four nights in a row, Mary said her child appeared to her and claimed she had been abused by Shu. Zona's spirit said Shu was abusive. She said he had choked her, crushing her windpipe and breaking the top vertebrae in her neck. Mary said one night, as her daughter's spirit departed, Zona turned her head completely around, displaying the damage that had been done to her physical body. At first, no one believed Mary's ghostly tale, thinking it was simply a mother's grief, but Mary convinced her neighbors and her brother of its truth, and together they approached a lawyer named John Alfred Preston. He didn't believe Mary right away, but after Preston spoke to Dr. Knapp, who said that he had not closely examined Zona's body, and some of the neighbors described Shu's strange behavior at the visitation, he obtained a warrant to exhume Zona's body for an autopsy. The body was exhumed on February 22, 1897. Shu was required to attend the autopsy, though he protested. According to oral tradition, he said, But they will not be able to prove that I did it. A later story, printed by the Monroe Watchman newspaper, said Shu sat whittling on a stick while his wife's body was examined. It reported, He seemed unconcerned until the doctor started working around her neck, when Shu showed signs of extreme nervousness. Shockingly, the story purportedly told by Zona's ghost about her cause of death was confirmed. The autopsy showed that her neck had been broken and her windpipe crushed, showing that she had been strangled. Edward Trout Shu was arrested for his wife's murder. The trial took place in June 1897. Prosecutors didn't want Mary to speak about her ghostly visions, but the defense asked about them, hoping to discredit her. But Mary stuck to her story and insisted it was true, and it was compelling. 
Judge J.W. McWhorter, who presided over the trial, described Mary's testimony on the stand in a letter to a friend after the event. McWhorter wrote what Mary claimed her daughter told her on the third night of her appearance. I told him supper was ready, and he began to chide me because I had prepared no meat for supper, and I reminded him that there was plenty. There was bread and butter, applesauce, preserves, and other things that made a very good supper. And he flew mad and got up and came towards me. When I raised up, he seized each side of my head with his hands, and by a sudden wrench, dislocated my neck. The judge went on to relate how Mary had kept a sheet that had been wadded around Zona's neck in her coffin, but it began to smell, and when she washed it, a red liquid oozed out and dyed the sheet. The sheet was displayed in court, and the judge said it was a decidedly reddish color. McWhorter said that he had never been to Zona's home, and neither had Mary, but Zona's spirit described the place in such detail that when he spoke to a friend about its location, based on Mary's testimony alone, they believed he had been there. Finally, he wrote that Shu had been heard to say that he wanted to be married seven times in his life. It was revealed during the trial that Shu had been married twice before his final marriage to Zona. His first wife divorced him and listed in the court documents that he had been abusive. Shu's second wife died under mysterious circumstances within a year of their nuptials. One story said she had fallen through ice. Another suggests she died when Shu accidentally dropped a brick on her head as they built a chimney. And it was revealed that between the two marriages, Shu had spent two years in prison for stealing a horse. Shu took the stand in his own defense during the proceedings. A local newspaper, the Greenbrier Independent, reported, he admitted that he had served a turn in the pan, declared that he dearly loved his wife, and appealed to the jury to look into his face and then say if he was guilty. His testimony, manner, and so forth made an unfavorable impression on the spectators. He denied the circumstantial evidence arrayed against him, but the jury was convinced otherwise. The trial only lasted eight days, and deliberations went on for a little more than an hour. Judge McWhorter could not instruct the jury to ignore the testimony about the ghost, because it had been brought up by the defense, not the prosecution. Shu was found guilty of first-degree murder. Most of the jury thought he deserved the death penalty, but it was not unanimous, so he was instead sentenced to life in prison. Following the trial in July, a lynch mob formed to hang Shu, but authorities heard about the mob and the sheriff was able to protect him by hiding him in the woods. Shu was said to be so terrified of the mob that he was unable to tie his own shoes. The sheriff confronted the mob and persuaded them to lay down their arms and go home. Four of them were later indicted for attempted lynching. Shu was imprisoned at the state prison in Moundsville. He died of an unknown epidemic that went through the prison population in March 1900 and was buried in an unmarked grave. Mary Hester maintained throughout the rest of her life that she had been visited by her daughter's ghost. She died in September 1916. Of course, people still argue whether Edward Chu was guilty, but it's rather amazing that Zona Chu's actual cause of death was uncovered. Still, it's hard to believe that as late as 1897 that a U.S. jury took the testimony of a ghost as credible evidence, uh, although it was supported by a strong circumstantial case. On U.S. Highway 60, in front of Sam Black Church in West Virginia, there is a sign commemorating Zona Shoe. It reads in part, Interned in nearby cemetery is Zona Hester Shoe. Her death was presumed to be natural until her spirit visited her mother to describe how she had been killed by her husband, Edward. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. This is our first episode of the new year, 
This is our 27th episode in all, and we're on our second year of podcasting. And personally, I'm really excited to begin our second year of what should probably be about 26 episodes like we did last year. I've really enjoyed what we've done, and I think we'll continue to, to do so with, with uh, now I think we've really figured out kind of our, our whole uh, setup as far as equipment. So I'm really excited to continue talking about history. Yeah. I, and we've had a lot of fun, but it was, it was also a great learning experience. And thank Absolutely. you for those uh, loyal listeners who have come with us for the ride. Uh, and uh, we hope to continue to make more and more and have a good time with it. So today we're talking about a couple of uh, interesting episodes. The first one uh, is the Greenbrier Ghost. It's a really, really interesting story. This one really feels like something that shouldn't have happened in real life. It sounds like the kind of event that you would hear in a novel. But that kind of makes it the perfect topic for the history guy, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, it does. I mean, you know, forgotten history is forgotten history. Uh, I mean, both of these deal with this this period where we're, you know, we're kind of deciding between, you know, old values and new values, between old traditions and new traditions. I mean, that still happens today. I mean, you know, there's still, you know, no matter what uh, uh, we want to say about the modern world, we still wish people luck all the time, right? So, but I mean, so these are, these are talking about really an era uh, when, you know, people still really were uh, compelled by uh, ancient traditions uh, even as they moved into the modern world. And, uh, and you know, that's what both these stories apply to. So, yeah, The Greenbrier Ghost. It's one of those stories where it's uh, if you if you told it in a movie, you might not believe it. But uh, it, it actually happened. It's actual history. It would make an interesting movie, by the way. I, I think it would make an interesting movie. It honestly movie. would. Yeah. And it's it's interesting not just because, I mean, it's, it's amazing to think that there actually is a case that essentially did accept uh, testimony from a ghost. It's it's crazy because it, you you try to think of that and you're like, oh, this is this just truly is absurd. Yeah. But I mean, that's what in makes it United good States, history. Yeah, in in what we still call the modern era, yeah, uh, literally accepted. Yeah, a, a, a testimony from a ghost. That's what we what we actually did. It's also kind of interesting that they wouldn't have done it except that the defense decided to bring it up. Um, I I get that they they didn't want to bring it up because. They thought it would the the uh, prosecution didn't because they thought oh it'll make her look uh, crazy, uh, which is probably why the defense decided to bring it up with the idea that uh, oh it'll make her it'll you know make her not a good witness and yet it that ended up kind of backfiring on them. Yeah, it certainly ended up. Yeah, that didn't work out for them in the in the, in the trial. Yeah. It's it's really well, and it's hard to say you know exactly what was decisive in the trial because it true. was I mean the, the circumstantial evidence was really pretty. Pretty compelling. That's also true. I, I mean, honestly, it was somewhat circumstantial. The the idea that you know she said, "Oh, this is what the ghost said," and that's actually the injury they found. I but but that that on its own. I mean, I think even in a modern trial, if that came up, it would be pretty difficult to shake that out of your head. If they they just happened to it, say, uh, you know, it would be. I mean, you know, reasonable doubt. No, there's all sorts of things that can impact stuff. But yeah, uh, and so. You know, I, you know, I honestly, uh, uh, you know, it's hard to say what would have happened if the trial had, you know, gone at a different time or, or gone differently. Uh, but uh, I mean, clearly, uh, it was compelling enough that it made a difference to the jury, and that's an interesting story. It really is. It really is interesting, and I, I don't, I don't have an explanation for for how she knew uh, what she did. I, I did wonder, as you mentioned, I mean, the circumstantial evidence was significant. <laughs> he was he was a guy who had been in several several marriages, who had been accused of mm-hmm. being abusive before, uh, all this all this other stuff. That there, and there were also just some I mean there were some suspicious acts by Shu uh, afterward. Him moving the body before anyone was able to see it, uh trying to, you know, getting it trying to get it just like buried and off and move on with his life so quickly. There was all there was all kind of some stuff that was that was suspicious. But I I, I did wonder, I mean 
could the story of the ghost and the supernatural stuff have all been a ruse? Did they, did maybe they had learned this information some other way and were trying to say that it was ghost testimony? Um, yes. I mean, that would answer yes. Uh, I, I, I suspect uh, that that's, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know the truth of it, but I would say that what seems most compelling to me is that that was uh, a, a way to convey some other information or that was just something where they were convinced that he had done it. And this is, and then that was some way they, they made up to try to, you know, fabricate evidence to do it. But I, I'm, you know, I, I hate, I have to say, I mean, I don't want to sound like a doubter or whatever. I don't think a ghost talked to her. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I don't think that her, she saw her daughter's ghost. I think the trial, I think, you know, quite possibly the jury, you know, thought he was guilty anyway. You saw, you know, saw that it was suspected that he was guilty and that, that that's why they were willing to be swayed by the evidence. Yeah. And it's, it is true that they were, they were living in a time perhaps where it, did I mean it clearly would have come off as somewhat ridiculous? The prosecution didn't want to just bring it up, but I mean maybe we were talking about a, a group of people who were more willing to accept the idea that yeah. she saw. So I mean, yeah, people who you know, I mean, you're you're coming from a common culture and a common understanding of things, and that's so it's not a shocker uh, uh, that that you know you had people that you know accepted that. Exactly, and and they understand they understand that you know this was not a not a well that there was something wrong with this case. It, it's really easy. Yeah. It's really clear that something was not quite. Yeah, I mean, you know, and and when you put together the circumstantial evidence that you know, especially given his past, and especially given you know that as strangely as he behaved, uh, you know, people will just start to assume you know that he looks guilty, and then there that makes you much more susceptible to listen to evidence that uh, yeah. even evidence that you might otherwise not you know think of as credible. And I don't, I don't know if it was a part of a large ruse to get that, you know, to convict him, if it was something that they all thought about, or if she really did just believe that she had seen that from her she, daughter. She just so strongly believed it, yeah, that she imagined it. I mean, maybe that's possible. Uh, and, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to come in here. We've talked about different stuff before we talked about, I mean, I don't want to denigrate anybody's beliefs. Uh, I, I kind of doubt that she was seeing her, her daughter's ghost, but uh, uh, I think that probably the least likely explanation is that her daughter came and told her that it killed her. But I, it's it's certainly possible that she imagined that, or that she dreamed that, or that that's you know that that's something that she you know um, you know essentially put together, divining from the evidence that was there against him. But it certainly seems to me, I think Occam's razor, the most likely story is that they knew that he was guilty, and this was something that they used to convict someone that otherwise the evidence might not have been compelling enough to convict. I think it's probably what's going on here. I mean, ultimately, I agree with that. And I, you know, I wasn't there. I don't, I don't know for sure what happened. I didn't right. experience. Didn't, didn't see the trial. Yeah, didn't see the ghost. Didn't. Uh, so it's, you know, it's not fair to judge. I can't say for sure what she saw, and I certainly can't say for sure what her motive is. I, you know, I can say what you know from you know my thinking about how things work. That's what I. That's what I think is maybe likely there. But I mean, if you heard it in trial, maybe it was much more convincing than you know than it seems like uh, you know uh, subjectively from the outside. Yeah. And it's certainly interesting to speculate. It's, it is, I mean, it truly is interesting that she was exactly right on where the injuries were. I mean, that's the thing that, yeah. that seems yeah. so unbelievable is that she was correct well, about I mean, that. But. but which you can also sort of divine from him, you know, him dressing the body, him trying to keep people from looking at the body. True. And what in his previous wife that had the brick fall on her head, I mean, it was, uh, you know, <laughs> there's a point where you're simply putting two and two together. You might, you might not yeah. have the proof of the four, but you can see the two and the two. So, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, uh, I mean, there's lots of ways that you could have come to this. And so there's lots of ways that the jury looking at this, maybe that, that evidence seems credible to them when they were like, you know, it sure appears that he's, that he's guilty. That's true. We don't actually know exactly if, if the, you know, the ghost evidence was the tipping point. 
of we, we, we don't, weren't we yeah, weren't inside no. whatever deliberations they did. But I mean, the the judge didn't say you can't talk about that. Nope. You know, the, the the jury was able to listen to it and weigh it with the other evidence, and and you know that's how it worked. Yeah, I wondered is. And I, I guess I don't know how much you know about this, but I mean, is this how it would work in a modern courtroom if they if if the defense decides to bring something like that up? I mean, if they brought up, oh, you said you saw a ghost and she says yes, uh, it just, uh, you know, uh, I'm not there are people who do law on uh, YouTube. <laughs> I'm not one of those. I did not attend law school. I don't know if there's any circumstance where this evidence would be, have been allowed uh, in a in a modern court. Uh, I honestly don't know. I mean, and it, you know, it'd be great. I'm sure that, that we have listeners that are attorneys can maybe speak more more professionally to that. Yeah, they're, they're right. Uh, it's really again, you know, we're we're historians. I mean, it was, and then that was that was the interesting hook about this as a piece yeah. of history is that the, the the testimony of a ghost was legally allowed in this trial, and there's reason to think it might have impacted the outcome of the yeah. trial, and that's that's fascinating to even think about because it's something you wouldn't have imagined that would have you know gone on in the United States. And, you know, in this in this era. And yet somehow, uh, you know, we it did. Yeah. And it's honestly I mean, my first thought had been like, oh, this can't be how it would work in a modern courtroom. But I honestly don't know. Maybe instead, you know, the defense decides not to bring it up because they know that it could bring in something that might be convincing, if also, you know, ridiculous. I, you know, honestly, if you go into an American courtroom, I think there's a very good chance that at least some jurors are going to firmly believe in ghosts. It's fair. I mean, it's it's still still a nation that is uh, fairly superstitious uh, and believes in angels and ghosts and miracles, and uh, and that's I mean, it, you know, it, it might might have been worth the risk, especially if you were lacking other evidence. It uh, does seem like I, a judge I just, just kind of think that a judge is going to say no, you can't. Yeah. You know, if the if the only evidence that you're offering as a prosecution is that uh, the ghost told you that they did it, I think the judge, the judge might you know might that, throw that case out when you know when the that's when it's going to be inevitably asked by the defense. So I, I honestly don't know how this works differently today. Uh, and I would you know I mean I, I'd be happy to hear an attorney express their opinion on it. Oh, yeah. uh, what we do know is how it happened in the past, and it makes for it makes for an interesting story. It makes for a, a compelling story. I mean, there's lots of ghost stories that come up all the, I mean, you know, the, the, their uh, uh, fiction is full of ghost stories. Yeah. So, you know, why don't we tell this this ghost story uh, that's a real ghost story? I mean, it's a, it's a real it's a real story from history where we know uh, that the testimony of a ghost was allowed in trial. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting. It really is. It's it's. I mean, that's what makes it such a great story and something so good to talk about is because it just, uh, it just seems ridiculous. And I'm so glad that I'm, I'm glad that we're able to talk about it, even if I'm not sure exactly how the law would view it, uh, view this court case today. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly a bizarre case. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? Uh, yeah, I watch a lot of Magellan, but uh, one one that I was watching that really ha- uh, caught me by surprise, I had no idea. It's called Salvage Code Red. And I'll tell you the truth, I've never thought that much about the salvage industry. Uh, and I, I certainly never knew uh, that there's emergency salvage. I mean, it never even occurred to me that there's high-risk emergency salvage. And it actually makes for very compelling television. Uh, and so, I mean, these these guys, uh, let's say that you have a, the one I'm watching right now, let's say that you have a ship that's at sea and it's on fire uh, and you need to salvage that ship before it sinks and dumps oil everywhere uh, and while it still has value. So you got to go on a burning ship and put the fire out and then you got to figure out how to tow the ship someplace where, you know, you can get the value. It is really a fascinating, compelling show about people who risk their lives in crazy ways where it has to be salvaged quickly or it's lost. 
There's six episodes to it. It's really compelling stories of stuff I didn't even know. I mean, these guys, in terms of reality television, these guys are truly risking their lives to do things. I had no idea there was anybody out there doing that. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's completely unexpected. And I mean, that's one of the great things about Magellan is that they've just got so many things. I mean, I constantly find stuff on there that is not something I've ever thought about. And I'm just like, that seems interesting. Yeah, I'm caught by surprise all the time. Who would have thought we're going to make a documentary series on salvage? And, and they did, and it's great. I was looking at this series called Disasters in Space. And so what it is, is it's kind of like behind the scenes stuff on NASA and the various disasters that have happened. And the one I watched is called Space Shuttle Shuffle. And it was essentially set after the uh, Columbia disaster in 2003. And so they stopped sending shuttles up for like two years as they examine everything on every shuttle. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they find out is that on one of the shuttles, the the like the ailerons on the back, and someone had taken that had installed the top set of gears incorrectly upside down. The truth is there are just like a million moving parts on these things. And uh, something very, very small, such as a single Absolutely. gear or something well, like that. Every one cause... of those of those million moving parts or actually probably tens of millions of moving parts was made by the lowest bidder. <laughs> exactly. And it, it's amazing because NASA doesn't uh, fabricate most of that stuff. I mean, ultimately, they're you know they have somebody else fabricating all these different well, yeah, things. Yeah. Actually, NASA builds very little. NASA mostly uses contracts, uh, and with so many parts, yeah, it reminds me of the uh, the St. Louis glider disaster, where it was just yeah. one part in a big contract chain, and you know that was the part that held the wing on. So it was you know an important part. <laughs> There's a point where you have to count on your contractors to meet the specs, and yep. uh, and it's difficult to do all the inspection that would be necessary to catch everything that could go wrong. This was just one episode. They've got five other ones of various other things. I thought it was really, really interesting. And so, I mean, I'll certainly watch the rest of them. Personally, I never am without something interesting to watch on Magellan. Every time you go, there's something, uh, um, there's tons of interesting things to watch. And you can go any sort of different direction again. uh, And they're all, it's all fascinating. Nature documentaries. I mean, there's just, there's so much you can do in the space. And uh, Magellan for, for what you pay per month. I mean, just the, the volume of great content that you have. If you're someone who likes to learn and you like documentaries, then you, you're just never without doc. new ones being added all the time. The new releases are, are, I mean, it's always just, there's dozens of those in the, in the queue of, of new stuff, even though you've got so much more old stuff to watch too. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of the history guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash history guy, where we will always have a deal for you. Sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership, or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash history guy. Up next, the history guy talks about the tragic trial of Bridget Clary. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the history guy. For thousands of years, some people in the Irish countryside believed in fairies, which they called the good people or sometimes just the people. Sophisticated folklores arose around these magical creatures that supposedly lived in the other realm. Children would be warned not to go near a solitary thorn bush, not to cut down certain trees, not to follow music that emanated from wild places, else they might be abducted by the fairies and taken to their magical realm under the hills, never to return. Or even worse, they might return, but it wouldn't be them. It would be a fairy changeling, which while it looked like them and talked like them was actually a monster underneath the skin. In 1895, an Irish barrel maker named Michael Cleary became convinced that his wife, Bridget Boland Cleary, was showing signs of fairy abduction and he was determined to bring her back. What happened next represented the clash between 
Catholicism and paganism and ushering out the old superstitions to make way for the modern era. It is history that deserves to be remembered. Ireland in the 1890s was a land that was changing, not just politically and economically, but also moving away from pagan superstitions into the modern era of technology, medicine, and science. Fifty years before, the country had survived what was called the Great Famine. When the potato crop failed multiple years in a row, thousands of laboring Irish starved. It was the worst famine in Europe of the 19th century. Experts estimate nearly a million Irish died from starvation or related diseases, and another two million left the country. Land became consolidated in the hands of the wealthy. Tenant farmers who found themselves unable to pay rent were evicted and left homeless. Eyewitnesses from that era describe families dead in ditches, their mouths stained green from attempting to subsist on grass. A movement began for home rule for Ireland, partly driven by demands for land reform that were the result of the demographic changes of the Great Famine. The question of home rule deeply divided Ireland. The nationalists, as they called themselves, believed no one could govern the people as well as the people themselves. However, their opposition in Parliament, the Unionists, thought that Ireland could not govern themselves. Some of them pointed to an uneducated and stereotypical belief in nonsense like fairies as additional reasons to oppose home rule. Irish culture was much affected by the events of the day. The death and migration caused by the Great Famine had devastated the Irish-speaking areas of the country, which tended also to be rural and poor. Starting in the 1830s, national schools had been established in an attempt to decrease illiteracy, but the instruction was done in English, further eroding the Irish language and culture. By 1900, for the first time in millennia, Irish was not the majority language of Ireland. The Catholic Church also played a role. The first cardinal in Ireland, Cardinal Paul Cullen, pressed for participation in processions, pilgrimages, wakes, and more to encourage former pagans to embrace the Catholic religion. Spearheaded from Rome, the Catholic Church in Ireland encouraged regular attendance and communion and mass. But despite these massive changes, some of the rural populace continued to believe in fairies, and some in the church chose simply to look the other way. Michael and Bridget Cleary were childless, something that was a rather an oddity in 1890s rural Ireland. While Michael worked his trade as a cooper, Bridget sold eggs from hens in her backyard and also sewed, owning her own Singer sewing machine, which was also unusual. The young couple lived with Bridget's parents in a cottage with a main room, two small bedrooms, and a fireplace with a built-in grill made of iron. One story about Bridget, which may or may not be true, shows what people believed about her personality. One day, Bridget was outside straining potatoes, and the parish priest went riding by. When her dog, named Badger, bit at the priest's horse, he kicked at the dog and ordered Bridget to call it back. Bridget was incensed by the priest's behavior and threw the boiling water and potatoes at him. The priest cursed her for her actions and predicted she would die violently by fire. Folklore around fairies ran deep in some communities, including the small Irish village of Ballyvaday, where the Clarys lived. When a dining family dropped food from their table, they'd leave part of it for the fairies. They'd set a pail of milk on the steps of their homes to appease any thirsty fairies. When throwing out trash after the sun went down, they'd call out to warn any passing fairies. And when someone went missing, the community would say that the person had gone with the fairies. In March 1895, Michael Cleary was concerned because his wife, Bridget, had been spending what he believed to be an inappropriate amount of time wandering around a, a fairy fort on a hill called Kailagrana near their home. Fairy forts are rings of stones left from an earlier civilization. Bridget's reason for going on long walks to the hill are not known. She did not keep a diary, though she had been educated at one of the national schools since the age of four and was certainly literate. 
Maybe she walked to get some fresh air, or maybe she went to the fairies seeking a cure for her seeming infertility, or maybe strong-willed Bridget did it to defy her husband, who constantly harassed her about her walks to the fairy fort. After one such walk, Bridget Cleary returned home saying that she was feeling ill and not quite feeling herself, and her husband Michael jumped to the conclusion that she had gone with the fairies and had been replaced by a fairy changeling. The tradition of fairy changelings may harken back to early history, when pre-Celtic tribes lived underground in order to escape the better-equipped Celts. Sometimes they would kidnap children who would go on to escape and talk about living with the people under the hill. Or it could be an oral tradition about the Druids who went into hiding after invasions and persecutions by the Romans. They would recruit young people to learn their secret ways, and if the person ever returned home, they had vowed not to reveal either the location or the secrets of the Druids. Whatever the origins of the changeling tale, Michael suspected his wife. At the time, the community described Bridget as a handsome, well-favored young woman of medium height, fresh complexion, with very dark wavy hair, beautiful eyes, and pleasing expression. She was rarely ill. Chloe also thought this sickly person seemed two inches taller than his actual wife, Bridget. In reality, Bridget might have contracted bronchitis, or the flu, or even tuberculosis, which had a social stigma, and so families with members who contracted tuberculosis would try to hide that fact. Some historians have suggested that possibly she had been meeting a lover up at the fairy ring, and her demeanor changed as the affair went sour. At first, Michael Cleary sought the help of traditional medicine and the church to cure his wife. A doctor came to the cottage and left some medicine for her to take. A priest also came at Michael's urging and saw that Bridget, though still healthy, was definitely suffering. For reasons he never fully explained, the priest gave Bridget her last rites and left. Michael took this as evidence that Bridget was dying. So he again sought help, this time from a traditional healer known for his fairy cures. Dennis Ganey prescribed herbs or unusual cures for people who came to him, and when Michael Cleary came to him begging for help with his wife replaced by a changeling, Ganey gave him a mix of herbs that was supposed to drive the changeling out. We don't really know what was in those herbs, but when you look at traditional Irish folklore, it was usually some bitter mix of filth and human urine. Michael Cleary called in help from the village, including Bridget's four male cousins, a female cousin, and a half-dozen neighbors. He forced the bitter-tasting herbs down Bridget's throat until she begged for him to stop. Later, eyewitnesses said he would scream, Swallow it, you devil! He clapped his hands and made her answer three times, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, are you Bridget, the wife of Michael Cleary? Believing invoking holy names and the power of the three would drive out the changeling. He threw urine on his wife in an effort to purify her body of the unclean spirit. And when she refused to take the herbs, Michael and another Bridget's male relatives, John Dunn, threatened her with a red-hot poker. The abuse went on for hours, over the course of days. Finally, when Michael was convinced he could do nothing else, he threatened to burn Bridget over the fire. Another changeling tale said fairies could not abide fire and would rush out of the afflicted person's body at its touch. Michael put her over the fire and again asked if she was his wife. She said yes. Bridget's own father, Patrick Boland, held her over the fire and asked if she was his daughter. Bridget replied, I am, Dada. Her family was convinced and removed her from the fire. However, Michael Clary didn't believe he had his wife back. He called the priest back yet again and asked that Bridget be given communion. The superstition was that if she was still a changeling, she would be unable to take the holy wafer in her mouth. Another of Bridget's cousins, Joanna Burke, said Bridget took the wafer but did not swallow it, spitting it out after the ritual was completed. This small final rebellion may have sealed Bridget's fate. 
Michael again asked her three times if she was his wife. She answered the first two times, but refused to answer the third. Clary threw Bridget towards the fireplace, and she struck her head on the stones at the hearth. Then he pulled out a brand from the fire and threatened her once more. Some witnesses claim by using a phrase that has become an Irish children's rhyme. Are you a witch? Are you a fairy? Are you the wife of Michael Clary? When she was silent, he threw lamp oil on her and folded her into the fireplace, where she began to burn. It's not my wife, Michael reportedly said while she burned. I am not going to keep an old witch in place of my wife, so I must get back my wife. When her family protested, he held them back, saying that in a moment we'll hear the spirit escape up the chimney. But the cottage was silent, and Bridget Cleary was dead. For days after the murder, the family testified that Michael went to the fairy fort, praying he would see his wife ride by on a great horse so he could steal her back from the fairies. After a few days of fruitless searching, one of Bridget's family members took Michael to the local church, where he confessed to burning his wife. Though I didn't mean it by God, he said. Bridget Cleary was not the only person to be murdered in Ireland in the 19th century in the name of changeling folklore. In 1885, when Michael Leahy of County Kerry could neither walk nor talk by the age of four, instead of understanding that he had a disability, his grandmother assumed that he was a fairy changeling and drowned him in a river trying to chase the fairy out. She was charged with murder but acquitted of the crime. Nine people were charged with the torture and murder of Bridget Cleary. Her husband, Michael Cleary, convicted not of murder but of manslaughter, received the harshest sentence, 20 years hard labor. The others were convicted of the crime of wounding and served lesser sentences. Even as he was being sentenced, Michael Cleary insisted that he was innocent, that he had not burned his wife, but instead had burned a fairy. But he had a change of heart in prison and eventually argued to a board of parole that he had been confused by his wife's family's ramblings about fairies. He was released after 15 years in 1910, immigrated to Montreal, Canada, and was lost to history. Of course, Unionists argued that this was an argument against Irish independence. One newspaper called it the Tipperary Horror and argued that Ireland and all of her civilization and all of her people should not be given over to a peasant-elected Irish parliament. The question of Irish independence remained contentious and eventually would spur open warfare. Bridget Cleary was brutally tortured over a matter of days. She's been called the last witch to be burned in Ireland, but of course that's not necessarily true. She wasn't accused of being a witch or consorting with the devil. She was accused of being a fairy changeling, and her brutal torture and murder represent the clash between those ancient superstitions and the modern era. Her badly burned body was buried next to her mother along the wall of the village cemetery. The grave is unmarked, except for a few rounded stones. I think one of the one of the main points you make in this one is that it's kind of the this connection of the the kind of old, more superstitious world uh, coming into you know right up against the modern world, and mm -hmm. bes despite the fact that this this event was used kind of this as this idea that ah the the Irish are like as a people you know they're they're dumb or superstitious and they all believe in fairies and they can't you know they can't take care of themselves. It is interesting to me, Michael. Uh, seems to first try to find modern solutions to what he thinks is a problem. And so I think that's a, he, he really only went to, you know, rely on his superstition after he had decided that ah, doctors aren't recognizing what I think is wrong. And you can see when you have those two cultures kind of pulling against each other, 
uh, you can see how we come to that. It wasn't just him, too. I mean, no, there were you know, several people that were, that were finally convinced that, that, you know, she was a fairy changeling. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot in the modern world that gets very frustrating where you're like, well, you know, why can't we fix this? Why can't we understand this? Uh, and, you know, if you if you think about it, most superstition probably came as a way to explain things that we couldn't uh, couldn't explain. So is it a shocker that when we get into something that scientists still has trouble dis- explaining uh, that people will shift back to superstition? And, you know, in this case, with tragic results. But, yeah, I don't I, I don't think he went into it with ill motive. I think he was literally convinced of what was going on. I mean, again, I wasn't there. I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, there, there could have been all sorts of motives involved. Uh, but but I think when you look at the story, it sure seems like, you know, he tried to give science a chance. It didn't work. He tried to give, you know, his uh, this, this superstition a chance and that there were enough people around who had enough of belief in it still that that didn't seem crazy to them, that they that they participated with him in this. Uh, and, you know, that still it still happens. I mean, it still happens all the time in the modern world. We still have conflicts uh, between faith and science or however you want to say science. I mean, I, I don't think there's probably single answers, uh, but we still we still have those challenges all the time. Yeah. Uh, and and people on both sides of that of that debate. I, it's it's really true. And while I think in in general these days, I mean, in most places, you know, if you say your your wife is a fairy, I mean, they're not going <laughs> to. They're not going to believe you. In fact, you might be the one that they think there might be an issue with. Um, but it is, I mean, it's amazing. Well, yeah, because, I mean, I, I think we're less likely, especially if something might say be mental yeah. illness, I think we're less likely to, to you know, call it demon possession or whatever. But, but there's still people who would. Oh, yeah, that's uh, true. But I can tell you that it's very, very common in America if someone is sick to have people pray for them. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's there. There are millions and millions of people who are absolutely convinced uh, that that will make a difference. And and I I have trouble denying someone their own experience and their own faith. And yeah. and uh, I, I can't blame people for having faith because I just know too many people who do have faith in so many different ways. Yep. And it's I I I do think there must have been something. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's one of the hard things. Is you think there must have been something different about Bridget? Um, to start all of this and they've had all their you know you talked about the theories about she was having an affair or if it was to uh, tb or what kind of stuff might have been going on but well it, he wouldn't be the first man who had trouble understanding his wife even if there was true. nothing at all peculiar going on right uh but i mean any of those explanations i mean it, it could be very difficult to explain something like her say having an affair uh, yeah. He would want to not believe that that's possible. Want to believe, not believe that that could possibly be his wife. Then you know she must have been possessed by something. There's no other explanation. I mean that's not a that's not a huge shocker. I mean I think that you know we we will jump to those sorts of realities today too, or those sorts, those sorts of assumptions today too. So I, I don't know. It could be that she was ill. Uh, it could simply be that she was. Uh, tired of living the role that she was forced on in a traditional society and she started to push back on her husband and he didn't understand any explanation for that talk back aside from she's been you know she's been uh, abducted by fairies well we we don't know uh, we don't seem to know a whole lot about whether their marriage was you know before that a happy one it does seem like the kind of marriage that devolves into this probably talked about that yeah I mean, yeah. it certainly could have. I mean, maybe they were very happy, but maybe it was one of those where she was very unhappy and, and it was just a society where you couldn't say that. Or, yeah. I mean, I honestly, I mean, it's it's very difficult. To, I, I would say, again, from my own perspective, without trying to insult anybody's faith system, I think it's unlikely that what happened was that she went up to a fairy ring, was abducted by fairies, and that they cooked a fairy in the fireplace. Uh, uh, but aside from that, uh, I you know, I honestly don't know 
what went on in their marriage, what went on in the relationship that would lead yeah. him to believe that the only possible explanation here was some sort of traditional explanation like that. Yeah. And I mean, that's what, that's one of the interesting things about about this story is that there's there we we know what happened, and that's what we can talk about as as historians. We can talk about what the information we have, but it is you do wonder. I mean, what other stuff was going on there, and yeah, you know how where could this have happened? This kind of thing is this is probably but not the only another, example. Of another it. possibility is not that she suffered from mental illness, but he did. You know, yeah, that was that was uh, one of uh, the you know, things. Who knows what voices are talking in his head? And I mean, it's I mean, he, he was avid age, where schizophrenia or other you know psychiatric disorders could uh, could manifest, and maybe there were voices in his head. Maybe there were. I mean, there are people who do irrational things, and and uh, that could have been an explanation too, uh, or it could have been just you know in a in in a, in a typical situation where people are under stress, like maybe your wife cheating on you, yeah. uh, or or your wife at least becoming. Uh, uh, different than what you thought that they what they thought they were simply because they changed with time uh, that that it somehow you know devolved into something that was yeah, rather shocking yeah and it's I, I did think that looking at it uh, one of the first things that kind of jumps out is that maybe it wasn't Bridget who was changing it was Michael and that he did have some kind of mental illness that I mean at the time would not have been diagnosed and we don't yeah, know that, he doesn't I guess he doesn't seem to have gone on in his life to you know have some other crazy event like this happen because he doesn't show up again but I don't know he could have if you moved to Montreal afterward right and maybe he changes his name and did have something crazy afterward and we just can't connect those two events I don't know uh, but it's I, I also wondered I mean after Bridget died and he got, you know, he got caught up in all of this. I, I, I can understand him leaning, as he did for quite a while, on the fairy understandings, uh, simply because he just couldn't come to terms with what you did. Yeah, couldn't. Yeah, I mean, otherwise you, you know, you tortured your wife to death, which is pretty awful. And so, so you had to have been convinced what you were doing, uh, you know, in order to do it. Yeah, which is pretty awful, and you can see why he might not want to accept that. Yeah, even so, if I he mean, this one, this did one. Very much a tragedy. Uh, I mean, very much, you know, we, we, it's difficult to see exactly because it wasn't just him. It wasn't just him rambling. He yeah. actually, you know, her, her father was involved. Uh, and and uh, very much, uh, it's not surprising if you understand that this is still a rural population. Uh, and, uh, you know, how, how, you know, they were still very much connected to uh, stuff that, you know, they thought they moved on to in, in terms yeah. of, of religion and faith. Uh, and actually, there's some revival of, of, of traditional religions. Uh, and so, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fascinating story. Uh, again, you know, from history, what we know is what happened. Uh, yeah. I mean, we can we can tell the story, but I mean, how you know what brought them to that? It's very difficult uh, without being anachronistic. Cause it's very difficult to step into their yeah. shoes. Well, we just and we honestly multiple things could have happened. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's hard for me to to really put myself in the minds of. Uh, it's actually probably impossible for for me personally to put my mind, you know, in a rural Scottish mind in the 1890s. I I just don't even I don't even or know where Irish, to start. Right. But, or, right, right. Um, uh, 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 yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, who, who knows? I mean, who knows what your experience, was, what your grandmother's experience was, yeah. and and how that works. I, I tell you what, any parent who's had a toddler can understand the, the <laughs> idea of fairy changelings, uh, uh, and, or a teenager. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, it's yeah, I, I, I. There's just so much about his life that we don't know about yeah. her life that we don't know. 
Uh, and that was left out of the story because it was, you know, there was a political purpose in the way that the story was told. Yep. Uh, and so this is something, again, I mean, I think as a movie, it would be interesting to see someone's take over what really happened, how they came to it. And, you know, and, and yeah. uh, is, is, is he a villain? Uh, or was he someone who you know, legitimately believed what he was doing? I mean, those, those are very difficult questions to answer. Uh, and th- that would be interesting to hear it, you know, from a, a story of, you know, I guess, fiction at that point. Uh, but we don't we don't know the we don't know the fact of it. We don't know how his mind came to it. We just know what he did. Nope. Uh, and, and what he did, you know, leaves leaves an interesting story. And that house is still there. That 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 stone was at least still there for photographs of it. Uh, and yeah. uh, that's uh that's a fascinating piece of history. So it might be simply a story of us grappling with the past and, and living on archaic traditions that are, that are irrational today. Uh, but there might have been something more, you know, more complex going on in terms of, you know, maybe he just wanted to get rid of his wife. Maybe he did. Uh, it's, it's kind of impossible for us to know. And what I, I mean, one of the things as we talk about, you know, these things, this superstition of the 19th century and the modern the modernity of the 19th century. I mean, that's, that is, it's a really interesting period because it really is a period where in 1890, when that happened, even, you know, the more educated folks could use this as an example of why, you know, that the, oh, these people are savages. (laughs) But we were, we were living in a world where, I mean, not that long before, we're we're talking Mm -hmm. a generation or two that it might've been a very different story. And they might have very much. Oh believed. yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And and I mean, I I, I would I would have been questioned that what we think sounds crazy to us today might have uh, uh, might have been absolutely just the ordering philosophy of his yeah. grandmother. Yeah. Uh, and 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 uh, so that, you know you would see in the you know in the modern world appearing crazy that you don't accept this reality of what's going on you know because you know we always knew that to be true. But again, you know how many people. Uh, I, I joke about this, but I mean, you know, if I if I say something that I think jinxes myself, I say knock on wood, and I try to find a piece of wood to knock on. I don't know where I learned that. I, I uh, do that if, too. If someone a... sneezes, uh, I'm a, my family happens to be German, so we say Gesundheit as opposed to uh, as opposed to bless you. But I mean, you know, it, why do you say Gesundheit? It wasn't a polite acknowledgement. It was you know, it was to keep the demon from escaping from your sneeze. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so I mean, the, the, clearly, there's a lot of superstition that is still built into culture. Like I say, someone's going off to do something and say, wish me luck. Someone's gambling and they will think that they have a streak of luck. Uh, I mean, yeah. you know, those are, there's there's still a lot that's built in. And who knows, you know, a generation from now, maybe that will be completely rejected and we'll think that those people are crazy and they'll think that we're crazy. Yeah. And that's, and hopefully I mean, that hopefully that doesn't mean that you burn anybody in your fireplace. But I mean, that I mean, it's, we, we, we live in a culture where lots of people have lots of beliefs and, uh, and it's very difficult to say you're right or you're wrong because everybody's had different experiences on that. Absolutely. Uh, and so, so this, this, this is just a shocking example of that, of when those two come into conflict. And you have to wonder if two generations before, uh, yeah. if, if anyone would have cared that he burned his wife when he said, you know, she's, she was the chance. Do they even write it choice. down, right? Do they, do yeah. they, is that even something of note? And it, it's interesting to think about that. And that's, I mean, that's another, what makes this particular incident so interesting is that it, when it happened, mattered. And the context about what happened, I mean, that's that's part of what made it history. And I, I think that's I think that's a really interesting way to, to is, understand yeah. it. Um, I did think, you know, this ends up tying to the political stuff of the idea of home rule. I I can't help but think, and I, I mean, I think this is probably just historically somewhat true, that there, there there's just a taste of uh, bigotry in the whole idea that uh, the oh, Irish absolutely. can't take care of absolutely. themselves. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it was absolutely <laughs> used. It was used as a way to reinforce yeah. stereotypes. 
Uh, and it's kind of funny because they're like, oh, those backwards Irish, we're going to go laugh about this with our with our king. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, as if the, the English... I'm going to get in trouble there by suggesting that the English were also somehow <laughs> living in the past and not acknowledging that. How could we possibly come to that conclusion? Uh, but uh, yeah, absolutely. It was used uh, to reinforce bigoted stereotypes. Uh, but, you know, then again, I mean, the guy did shove his wife in a fireplace. That's so, also I mean, there's, true. You know, there's, I mean, yeah. And and I don't know if it's fair necessarily to you know take that as an example of the you know overall Irish sentiment. And I, there there were also I mean there were political and uh, economic reasons that England might want to continue to control you know, Ireland. And I, oh, I absolutely, was, absolutely. There were and there were there were every reasons to exploit yeah. the bigotry uh, that was going on. Uh, they've done that uh, all and, over and, the place. And, and and so this was used. It was used as a propaganda tool to exploit a political position for clear purpose. I mean, there's no question that that happened. There's, I mean, there's no question. But again, it is actually a horrible event. Actually, oh, an yeah. event that that should have some meaning. Uh, and uh, and you know, you would hope that people would be shocked. Yeah. by what happened, because you don't want it certainly to happen again. Hey, uh, or, you know, regardless of the context, I mean, no one's saying that Bridget deserved to get set on yeah. fire in her no house. No one seems to be arguing, yeah. Yeah, that was, that That seems like that was well, clearly, except, <laughs> except for maybe Michael at the time, but... Yeah, except um, for Michael Cleary, who, who seemed to think he was truly doing what was the best for his wife. Again, we don't know that for sure. I mean, we don't know that that wasn't an excuse for him. It would seem that if it was an excuse for murder, it was a bizarre one. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, if that's that, that seems to be an awfully complex way to come up with a murder plan is convince your father-in-law that your wife's been taken by fairies and see if everybody will get in a cabin with you and help you murder her uh, and make her drink urine or whatever the heck they yeah, were doing to her. Right? Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, let's see. I'm mean, so you, you almost have to look at it and say, I think they honestly believe that they had used science to the end of science, and it was time for them to go back to tradition that had been part of their lives, uh, and that they believe that what they were doing is right. Yeah. And you know, when when it ends the way it ends, you got keep believing that or you you know or you've got to admit to yourself that you did something horrible to someone that you loved and, and so you can that that makes that whole situation very strange and very complex uh in terms yeah. of what was going going through the minds and, and and how it happened and i mean but i mean you could again i mean there's so many ways that this could become a model you know for the modern world we will yeah. also seek treatments uh that you know that might be experimental or whatever but we just want someone to survive because we love them uh and we're gonna always you know when you make that choice you're gonna believe that you made the right choice and and you know you know, maybe, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. There, yeah. You come to modern versions of this uh, that are still very believable today and that leave you more, you know, sitting back and saying, hmm, you know, I, it's kind of hard to judge in that case. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately. But, you know, again, you, you don't just need hindsight to say you shouldn't shove your wife in a fireplace. No, I mean, just that's don't, not just, don't, a, oh, you know, it seemed the thing to do at the time is still not a good answer. Yeah. Uh, I, but I, I kind of thought that in, in, uh, uh, the Greenbrier ghost case too is that you know we we talk about the superstition and running into it, but it in terms of questions of whether they took it seriously or not, uh, if they had that information from somewhere else, you know if they if in the Greenbrier ghost case they knew that her neck had been broken and they had learned that some other way, it is odd to choose a ghost told me as the as you know how you're going to present yeah, that information that's your way to get that through yeah right. yeah, yeah yeah it's true so it, it makes you seem to think that they had to have believed what they were saying yeah uh, yeah yeah i it's, you know i see uh, you know i don't know but i mean there are lots of people today who are sure that they've seen a ghost and so maybe it oh, was yeah. you know maybe it was a fair a fair way to push the trial yeah, and I don't, I don't have an answer for that. I, <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe they sat around and said, "Yeah, we think enough of the jury is willing to buy this that it, that it, this is a you know this is a legit thing for us to bring up," uh, and you know, and and you know, I guess it, it worked, right? So, 
I don't know. I, I know that I know I personally know people who absolutely believe in ghosts and who would find this story credible uh, today. I mean, I don't know if it would appear in a court yeah. of law, but I mean, I, I, I know that I know people who are otherwise seemed very, very reasonable people who, who that wouldn't be a shocker to them. I mean, look how popular ghost hunting shows are on, on you know, there's, there's people who Even are making their we... money on YouTube and in podcasts talking about the ghosts that they've met. Exactly. And I, that does make me want to bring up when we were in Virginia last year, uh, we did so, we did some cool stuff. We talked a little bit about that. Um, we've done some episodes, but one of the things we did do is just kind of as a, as a fun thing was we had we had an evening where we didn't have anything else scheduled. And we did go on a ghost tour of Yorktown. We went on a ghost tour. You can find ghost tours all over the country. Uh, and uh, as a historian, I mean, because uh, every place does have its ghost, and that is to say that every 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 location has its story. It has its story of people that were there, uh, and you know that memory haunts those places, regardless of what you believe about spirits or ghosts yeah. or whatever. That you know that's worth talking about. It's kind of cool to walk around at night and say so and so lived in that house, and this is the reason that so and so would have to haunt that house. You know, haunt, haunting set aside. Uh, and uh, I can say that I've gone on more than one ghost tour. I've never seen anything that I was you know convinced is a ghost. Uh, I, I took, I did what he did, what he told us to do. Take three pictures just to see if anything changed or anything like that. We saw no ghost that night. Yeah, I, uh, but I it, was still, it was still interesting. And, and we had done a tour of the almost the same area earlier in the day with a historian, uh, uh, not talking about ghosts. And we learned some things from the ghost guy that we didn't learn in the other tour. And it was That's not true. nearly as hot. The, the other side too is boy, whew, the time was, we happened to be there nice. in the hottest. Yeah, we were there in the hottest time ever. I think we were breaking records in Virginia when we were there. So in the end, uh, you know, a, a, around you know eight at night was a much more <laughs> pleasant yeah. time to go on a walk in in, in Virginia there. But uh, we, we should mention we were invited out there by the people at Visit Williamsburg, who who yeah. are it's their job to advocate the, the Williamsburg area. They're great people. They treated us with such kindness. Uh, very hospitable people. I loved Williamsburg. I wouldn't necessarily recommend mid-August as the best time to go. But then I mean, there were certainly lots of people there and, and having a good time. Uh, and that was uh, that tour was in uh, York, Yorktown, actually. That was yeah. in, it was in Yorktown Village. Uh, and uh, and I, you know, I would recommend it. It was fun. I mean, it was fun. I was enjoyed fun. it. I didn't see I didn't see ghosts. a ghost. I didn't see a ghost. We were even – we were in pitch black looking into a church cemetery, listening That's to a right. story about the ghosts in the church cemetery. Nothing. Nada. You know, if a raccoon had run by, it probably would have made us all scream, but nothing. Yeah, yeah. that was it was an interesting because that church was uh, the, the walls of it. The church had been burned down several times, but the, the at least some portion of the walls of it were still like original from 1600 something. I think that maybe even the garden walls that we were looking at were, were old. But yeah, some parts of the church yeah. were very old. But it was interesting because it seemed so spooky when we were there at night. Well, we'd started out the other tour in that cemetery. You're looking at one of the graves, right? We, I mean, the, the place backed into that cemetery, yeah. so it's much less spooky during during the day. Uh, and and that story that he told there was pretty funny, but it sounds pretty much like the guy panicked and managed to nail his own cloak to the ground and <laughs> thought he was <laughs> caught is, by a ghost or something. It was a very strange story he was telling. So I don't know. And there was some, someone else was supposed to appear in a window, and I, I looked, and uh, no one seemed to appear in that window. And, and uh, you know what a coincidence That's, that like the seven houses that are on this one walk all happen to be haunted and have a haunted story to them. Yeah, it's a, may, maybe that's what happens when you just you know you leave buildings. Yeah, maybe it's well, especially when those buildings have been sitting there since you know the, the 1600s. Yeah, and you know there's lots of places in Europe you can go where you're going to find seven eight buildings that are that are 500 years older than these buildings. Uh, and yeah. uh, so so you know when you have that much history to it. 
Uh, so it's fun. It's fun to add that little bit of a spooky nature to it, and and it's fun to you know to go at night because things look different at night than they did during the day. Uh, and you know, I, I for people who who enjoy it, I mean, ghost tours. Everyone I've gone on has been enjoyable, and it, you know, tends to have a tour guide that's a little bit more theatrical than you get on a that's regular true. historical tour. He was carrying around uh, a lamp. Actually, it was pretty, yeah, he was, was pretty yeah. fun. I, I can say, and he'd written a book on this. I mean, he was great. What I can say is that uh, I enjoyed the tour. Uh, I'm glad that we did the tour. It was not an expensive tour, and I did not see a ghost. My biggest concern is when we went walking through some of these, I was coming out of it with ticks. That was my biggest. I was more worried about Lyme disease than being attacked by an 18th century citizen of, of Yorktown. That, that's that's fair. I In either way, I think it was worth doing. So It was, yeah. It was absolutely it was worth doing. Most, most of the stories of ghosts I did not find to be particularly compelling as ghost stories, but they were interesting as, as, as history. I would have loved to see some ghosts running across the field as he described That's, it. That's, you know, prove me wrong. That'd have yeah, been fantastic. If, if we, <laughs> if the soldiers were marching across the field or whatever he said there, if there was something very weird on my camera or something like that, then it would have been a more interesting story to tell. But, uh, you know, to, to it, be honest, it, 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 that's, that's, that's where I'm at with ghosts in general is I'm like, I, I don't know if I'm fully, I, I'm not really convinced of it, but, uh, I could be convinced. I could be. <laughs> I, well, especially if you saw the picture, I suppose. Yeah. Same thing with Bigfoot, you know, or, or what? We've talked oh, yeah. about other things here. I don't want to. I mean, I, I, I guess I would say I'm, I'm more of a standard skeptic. I mean, I don't think that probably Bridget clearly was a doc, was abducted by by fairies. I don't think that. Uh, yeah, I don't think that her mother saw her ghost. I, I mean, I, I think it's it's unlikely. Uh, we tell some of those stories around Halloween because they're they're spooky. I mean, there was a, we did one about some axe murders that were not too far away from yeah. here. The people that own that land always insist they hear dogs barking on on the night mm. that that supposedly occurred uh and and i you know i don't know if that's just a story or what is the story i tend to at least take the skeptical attitude first but if i had gone on that tour and i'd taken a bunch of photographs and i come coming back and son of a gun there were you know clear shapes of revolutionary war soldiers running across the field or something like that uh, i i think you know i would be like ooh. So I, Ooh, and it's kind yeah, of fun if you get a, anything that comes out of a out of a ghost thing, anything that gives you a little chill up your spine like oh this could be real it'd be cool yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't that particular night. No, nothing in there gave me a chill, uh, except for you know, like, are, should we really be walking through this tall grass? Uh, you know, <laughs> with in tick season, yeah, that's the in tick, Yeah, I don't know what kind of snakes you got here, but I'm not sure. I, I like to be able to see where my feet are going. You know, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe that's me, just me being paranoid. So, I mean, these are two these are two interesting stories because they're great history because we know things happen that are just that seem crazy in the modern thing, but we know. That it at least happened. We know that the testimony of a ghost was allowed in trial. We know that people so believed that someone was abducted by fairies that they that they you know tortured her to death, and and that that those really happened, uh, and and those become compelling history. Trying to understand yeah. how that fits into the the modern world that they were straddling. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.